Welcome to the Philosophy and Theology Porch. If you recall, we will be back on track in regards to our original goal of going through just some of the history of philosophy and possibly engaging with that um, from a theistic perspective, at least to some extent. So today we're going to talk about Plato. And again, roughshod. We're just going over generally some of the, the important or key aspects of Plato and his thought. Um, just uh, by way of introduction and a little background, uh, remember that Plato is himself a disciple or a student of Socrates. So when Socrates uh, is, is, uh, undergoes capital punishment by his own, his, own, uh, his own citizens, his fellow citizens rather, um, of course Plato looks at this as just a, a, a disaster. Um, in regards to uh, the event, that this is just a terrible thing. So he travels around, ends up in a couple different courts uh, under the influence of different, you know, uh, political leaders and so on and so forth. But he eventually uh, comes back to uh, Athens and he founds what's called uh, the Academy. Um, this is where Plato does his teaching. Apparently, according to um, um, the text I'm looking through here today is just an introduction to philosophy by Daniel J. Sullivan. It has just a nice little succinct uh, section on Plato, and during in, uh, or during the, the course of his his writings here uh, regarding Plato, he, he he talks about the academy where he just says again that he returns to Athens where he founded the school of philosophy. Uh, but here's the interesting part: is apparently according to Sullivan here, it says uh, the academy is named after. A guy named Academus, the owner of the garden where it was supposedly established. Uh, of course, we know after that that the school was uh, lasted. The academy lasted uh, for roughly about 900 years of, of unbroken uh, philosophical and academic training there. That's pretty remarkable um, just in and of itself when we think about it. Now, most of Plato's works... Uh, come in, in what we would call dialogues, you know, those kind of how we said that Socrates would go back and forth uh, in, do, in dialogue uh, with his uh, interlocutors there or his objectors or whoever he was questioning at the moment. Well, this is also how uh, most of Plato's works come down to us. Uh, and of course, Socrates is usually uh, the leading figure in those uh, dialogues. Now, I think that we may have spoken about this when we talked about Socrates uh, but the, the, the early, those early dialogues, the, the initial dialogues, um, are supposedly, most, most believe, actually represent the, the thought and the teaching of Socrates. And it's the later ones. Uh, so, so the Republic, one of the, one of the dialogues is, is labeled the Republic. So the Republic and after that, uh, most scholars think that this is uh, more representative of, of the thoughts of Plato, even though it's supposedly coming out of the mouth of Socrates. Now, some may ask, well, well, if it's coming out of the mouth of Socrates, then why think that this is Plato's work? Uh, we don't have time in, to get into those particular arguments, but generally uh, the reason that he would have stuck with, quote-unquote, Socrates saying these things is, is just because it seems to be more uh, accepted if someone of importance who's already held in esteem uh, is, is saying something or claiming something or teaching something. So that sounds sort of pejorative uh, 
towards Plato that he would do that. Whether that was intent or not, I'm not going to necessarily weigh in on that. But if for no other purpose, a lot of people believe that's why you would put your teachings in the mouth of somebody more uh, important or already to have been already to be seen as important. Um, with that said, we can actually start to look at some of Plato's actual teachings, what he thought himself in regard to specific matters. All right, so Plato, among other things, again, remember this is a rough shot. Plato has specific views in regards to ethics. You know, uh, we may even touch on his view of the soul, so, uh, things of that nature. But one of the big, big issues in regard to Plato is that this whole perennial problem or this, this lasting problem of, of what has come to be known as the problem of universals or the one and the many. And so Socrates, you know, at his point in time was contended to ask questions uh, for him, the big questions, you know, what is justice and temperance, uh, goodness, virtue, those sorts of things. Plato was asking questions like what is a tree or what is tree what is green what is triangle what is circle as uh, Sullivan writes out here Plato is asking these questions in regard to our understanding of the very natures or essences of the things themselves um, as opposed to just questions about maybe how to live the good life or moral virtues or morality, again, hence above what is justice and temperance and so on. What does it just even be a tree? What does it just even be a circle? So why do we give one name uh, to some things and different names to others? And what does it mean to say that there is one thing, but there are two of them? So again, like let's say we see a forest, and you would say, what composes the forest? And you'd say trees. Let's just say, for sake of argument, all that's there are trees. Well, Plato would say, well, is there just one thing there, tree, or are there a bunch of different things? Because if there are a bunch of different things, then how can they at the same time be the same thing, yet be different things? So think about that. How can there be one thing there, which we would all say, well, in one sense, there's just one thing, trees. Well, Plato would say, well, wait, how do you say there's just one thing when there are clearly many different things unless there's something that they literally have in common that they share? And this is what we'll, Plato will, will, will go in to talk about as, as, as a universal, as a nature or essence, as Aristotle would later call them, something like treeness, that they all have treeness. How do you make sense out of the one and yet the many. And so this is not just, obviously, it doesn't have just have to do with trees. It has to do with humans. How do you have humans, yet they're all different humans, yet there's just one thing, humans, or humanness. Is this, does such a thing exist? Or how do we translate words like when a Frenchman uh, identifies snow and we identify snow well we don't say the same thing we say a completely different sound using a different completely different language yet we're talking about the same thing so what are we actually talking about so again this is the the, the problem of the one and the many so 
Plato would argue something like, there has to be something that exists that is shared by, again, the trees or the, the people or snow or whatever. I mean, literally, whatever you could possibly think of, chairs, tables, books, uh, sharks, <laughs> cats, dogs, whatever that they have this one thing in common, meaning that you see a dog and you see a dog and you see a dog. Well, you you learn to understand what dogness is. And we'll go into a little more depth in this in regards to Aristotle. But you would understand what dogness is. So Plato has this idea, or this quote-unquote doctrine of the two worlds in, the, in that there are forms, there are these perfect ideas that dogs, each individual dog relates to. Each individual dog relates to this perfect, idealistic, this idea of dogness. So in the world of the forms, in the world of the, of the ideas, somewhere out there in some non-material, non-spatial existence, some other dimension maybe, that there's this thing that exists called dogness. There's this thing that exists, this form called humanness. And all humans are just a, just a representation of a, a very feeble or flawed representation of humanness. Or in regards to dogs, dogness or trees, treeness. Um, and there's a form for everything, even abstract types of things like goodness. There's a form of goodness, which is obviously a little difficult to understand. But Plato is trying to account for how do we have this one thing and yet have different things that are the same thing. And so this is how he's trying to account for this. And of course, later, later Aristotle, uh, Plato's student, Plato's disciple, Plato's student, Aristotle, is going to refine this view um, a little more. Now, this view that Plato has has been dubbed uh, different names it's been called idealism now because the ideas are what really, really, truly exist and the material instantiations of those things are less than real, so to speak, according to Plato. They're not as good. Material is not necessarily good. It's the ideas that are good. The forms, that those, 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 uh, the world of the forms is, is, are really what are good. Um, so anyway, there, this is how Plato is trying to account for this sameness, yet this difference that we seem to experience uh, in the world, um, which, by the way, is, is, is something of a combination of, of Parmenides' teaching that nothing ever changes at all, and Heraclitus, the, on the other extreme, that everything is constantly changing, that there is no sameness, there is no moving, there is no changing, there, nothing is, is, is this way. Or excuse me, Heraclitus would say everything is changing, everything is, is moving, there's nothing that remains the same. And again, Parmenides, Parmenides and then some of his disciples such as Zeno would argue that it's the exact opposite, that nothing ever changes. Change is just an illusion. Uh, difference is just an illusion. There's no such thing. And so Plato is trying to make sense of these two extremes. Um, how do we have same, the same thing, yet many different things that are the same thing? He's disagreeing with Parmenides, um, um, some of those before him. Now, again, 
we, we tend to see this as, 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 as rather odd that there's this world of the forms or this world of ideas um, that reality in some way corresponds to, albeit in a, in a less than real fashion, a, a, an inferior fashion. But remember, this was groundbreaking um, in one sense. Uh, because it, it's trying to take the common sense view in, 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 in a way that, no, wait a minute, things really do stay the same as we seem to experience, and things really do change as we seem to experience. Now, again, Plato's view is, was, is labeled uh, different things, but one of those is extreme realism because he, again, is saying that the, 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 the real, real, the ultimate real is the is the ideas of the forms themselves, not the material aspects of them. In fact, we've seen this. A lot of early Christians were Platonist in their thought, and so this is where this idea comes that the body is somehow this 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 just mere lowly storehouse for the soul, which is actually trying to get back to, or supposed to be released back to, or go to uh, heaven. And that's the real you as the soul, and, this, and, you, and your body is just this inferior, kind of weak jail cell, so to speak, that kind of holds you back from being the real you, which is your soul. Now, this is actually in contrast to Christian theology, because remember, Christian theology says at the beginning that God created all things, and all things are good, and material bodies, flesh, all of these things we see, material existence, as opposed to just ideas or forms or what have you, that material, which includes the body, that that is good too. Now, this is why we'll later see that something like Aristotle, uh, the Aristotelian notion, <clears throat> and the even more specifically the Thomistic or the, uh, the, the account of Aquinas piggybacking off Aristotle, is going to be much more friendly to uh, Christian theology. Um, as opposed to what some of the early Platonists, um, how they viewed the body and the material things. And again, why were they less than? Why were they inferior? Because they're just representations of, inferior representations of the perfect, the ideal, which is the, the, the ideas of the forms um, that Plato has, has posited here. Um, <clears throat> now, just in regards to this, we want to say that the metaphysical idea of calls Remember, of cause, if we're talking about cause and effect, is vastly important, um, as this was one of the most important topics that originally enabled Socrates and Plato to discover the truth of reality beyond the physical. Um, because, again, remember, this is, this is a breakthrough in that sense. And so the pre-Socratics were beneficial in that they discovered uh, the material, efficient, and even final cause, um, the purpose within natural order. And we'll get into a little more depth of what that means, what those four terms mean um, when we, we talk about Aristotle. But, <clears throat> again, however, because of their belief that all reality was material, so many of these, so many of these prior to Plato and, 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 and Aristotle and, and Socrates, however, because of their belief that, that, that reality, that all of reality was material, this presupposition would blind them to the discovery of something like a formal cause. And so you have somebody, or again, remember, the ideas, the forms, the, this one thing that unites the change. So it's somebody like uh, uh, your Roman Catholic theologian, 
Father Brian Malati, he, he says, and I'll just quote him here, this allowed a person to experience the union of knowledge with all examples of that thing materially existing in the world, whether past, present, or future on one experience. This was truly the discovery of the formal cause, or we're talking about the idea. So through the experience of one tree, a person could know treeness and thus participate in the being of all material trees. Now, it would probably take more than just one tree. You'd have to experience a few of those through induction before you start to abstract treeness there. But that's for neither here nor there right now, so we'll continue. The question remains... Uh, as to why this would be important, again, to theology and Christian thought. As it has been developed up to this point, all of reality, as far as Greek philosophy was concerned, was reduced to the material. But upon the discovery of these ideas, these formal causes, this something that unites uh, the one and the many, the door was made wide open for immaterial realities, specifically the study of them, uh, in regards to God, this was not immediate. Of course, th it's important to stress this, that it's not immediate. It was not immediate upon the discovery of formal causes or the ideas or, or, or the, the forms. Um, but it was not long until philosophers turned their, their curiosity to the subject. And of course, as we'll go on to see, notably Aristotle and his observations of material cause and effect led him to the existence of the immaterial prime mover, what we would say is God. Uh, of course, and as known, this is still embraced within classical philosophy, even after uh, two millennia. And, of course, we would even say it's foundational for Christian theological study. <clears throat> so, this is why, at least in part, part of what Plato is, has done here in, in this in this breakthrough um, of, of recognizing that there has to be something that unites the sameness that we see, yet the difference that we see. Um, up until that point, it, it, was, it was rather convoluted. Now, it's hard to talk about Plato at all without at least mentioning, mentioning the allegory of the cave. And it, 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 there's sort of a dual purpose here, but roughly... The allegory of the cave is that imagine that you have a guy chained down to the bottom of a cave somewhere, and all he can see in front of him are shadows. He sees these shadows in front of him. He can't turn his head to the left or the right. He's chained down. All he can see is, is, is the shadows. So to this guy who's chained down there, the shadows are reality to him. Little does he know that behind him, Little does he know, again, that behind him that there are people or whoever, what have you, you can postulate, whatever, that are walking around with these just representations of, say, giraffes and elephants and, and chairs and people and whatever, the, whatever exists in the world. And the reason that he sees the shadows is because behind them is a, you know, you can imagine just a, a big fire or a flashlight or whatever. Of course, in Plato's day, it would have to be a fire or a torch if they didn't have flashlights. But anyway, that's, the, that's what's casting these shadows that this guy sees on the wall in front of him. But he doesn't know that there are people or whatever behind him holding these, these representations up that are making the shadows. So he turns around, he, he, let's, let's say somehow he breaks free from his chains. He turns around and he sees these representations. Well, now he's getting a little closer to what is real. 
Is he not? He sees that the shadows are just the representations of the these these little statues or these little constructions of giraffes and people and, and monkeys and apes and and chairs and, and apples and oranges and, and and cars and whatever. Well, no, obviously not cars, but whatever existed in that time. Just whatever represents reality. So he's he's shocked. He's 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 it, it hits him. <laughs> He can't believe this. His whole view of reality has been shaken. So he continues in his progression out of this cave and he starts to see light. And at first, you know, the light blinds him. He can't even, he can't even comprehend it. Um, it's just too much for him. And you see the application here that, 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 that Plato is making. Somebody's coming closer to the truth. So he finally gets adjusted to the light. He comes outside and he sees the real giraffes and trees and, and, and people and, and, and oranges and, and apples and, and chairs and, and whatnot and horses. And now he sees the real. This coincides what Plato would say to the world of the forms. He, he's, he's recognized and finally sees reality. And so he runs back down into the cave. He wants to tell others what's going on. Of course, no one believes him. They think he's out of his mind. They just don't understand because, again, they're chained to the back of the wall, looking straight at front in front of them at shadows, and what this this man who's supposed to represent the philosopher, this man who's found the truth, is trying to tell the truth to people, and they just can't comprehend it and they don't accept it. Um, of course, this 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 little parable, this allegory, is supposed to help identify what Plato means when he when he talks about the world of the forms, the world of the ideas. Um, that he's found the true representation of reality and it's just too much for people to bear. And it also supposedly represents the plight of the philosopher, um, the philosopher's job uh, in that the philosopher is someone who seeks truth and when he finds it, the masses just don't want to hear it. It's just too much for them uh, when someone comes along with what sound, seem to be very strange um, notions, very strange ideas, even though to the philosopher he knows he's, he's, he's found these, these truths. So, with that said, Plato, again, we're, we're just running roughshod. He did have a view of the soul, namely that it was immortal, um, that when you learn things, that you weren't necessarily learning things in the way that we think of when we say that we learn things, but that you're actually, because Plato thinks that the soul is immortal, that you're actually, and get this, this is pretty crazy, and when I say crazy, I mean not that he didn't have arguments for this, but it's just out there, so to speak, just like our allegory of the cave was supposed to help help us to, to realize that when you learn things, that you're not actually learning them in the normal sense of the word. You're actually recalling, because you're immortal, your soul is immortal, you're actually recalling things that you already knew before your existence. So, for instance, one of his just very small arguments would have been something like he would take a who would have been a slave boy at that particular time period, and had would it would bring him over to say, "All right, look, this boy has never been taught anything. He's he's not educated at all. Specifically, obviously, he's not he doesn't know anything in regards to mathematics and geometry." And Plato may draw uh, two dots in the sand, and he may say something like, "All right, what's the shortest distance between these two dots?" And the boy draws a straight line, something like that. So that he says, look, how could he have possibly been, he couldn't possibly have been taught this. He's not educated. Well, how did he know this? The only other way to account that he could know that this something like these, this 
this this uh, this truth that it's the the the, the the fastest way between these two points or the closest proximity between the two is by a straight line. Well, if he didn't, he wasn't taught that, yet he knew that, well, then he has to have recalled that. Or, uh, so maybe something like an inference, if you were to say something like if A is equal to, equal to B and B is equal to C, then obviously A has to be equal to C. But he wasn't taught that. A slave or an uneducated man wasn't taught that, so how could he possibly know that? Well, he must be recalling that, uh, that particular, that truth, so to speak. And again, there's there's multiple arguments that he offers to try to do this, but the the idea here is in in regards to Plato that he he thought that the soul was immortal. So in his own words, and as 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 Sullivan points out, Plato says, "quote The soul, when using the body as an instrument of perception, that is to say, when using the sense of sight or hearing or some other sense for the meaning of perceiving through the body, is perceiving through the senses." is then dragged by the body into the region of the changeable and wanders and is, and is confused. The world spins round her and she is like a drunkard when she touches change. But when returning into herself, she reflects. Then she passes into the other world, the region of purity. Here he's talking about the world of the forms, the ideas. The region of purity and eternity and immortality and unchangeableness, which are her kindred, meaning to say which are, are, she's related to them, she belongs with them. And with them, she ever lives when she is by herself and she is not or is not let or hindered. Then she ceases from her erring ways and being in communion with the unchanging is unchanging. And this state of the soul is called wisdom. Now, how would something like that contrast, how would it correlate with the Christian understanding uh, Christian theological understanding of the soul. Uh, well, as it's been stated on many occasions that, you know, one should quote-unquote take the meat and, and spit out the bones. Of course, this cliche may prove beneficial in regard to the Christian conception of the soul as compared and contrasted with that of Plato. So, the first and most obvious com comparison is simply that, that the Christian and Plato agree that there is a soul. <laughs> so, we have that in common. Now, that is, the material aspect of man is not the entire truth as to what a man is in the ontological sense of the word or metaphysical sense of the word. There is another aspect to the human being that is not reducible to the purely physical. So both worldviews also agree that the soul is more than capable of lasting the duration of eternity. That's something else in common. In fact, this is one of the many arguments offered by Socrates uh, that the soul will not wear out as an old garment may wear out, but that it will endure time. Now, it's worth noting that both views give nod to the belief that the soul is in control, but that's not to say unaffected, of the material body. Again, another point in common. Now, also both systems seem to agree that the soul, if not reducible to the personality of the individual, at least continues to have or contain the personality of the individual. That is to say, um, the soul in the afterlife is not simply to be thought of as someone else entirely, distinct from who he or she was on the earth. However, this you know does some, seem to become fuzzy in, in light of, of Socrates, Plato's belief that one could be reincarnated um, in ironic contrast 
with a picture of the soul individual journeying through the judgments of the afterlife and the underworld. And, and we didn't really have time to get into that. Um, but that would be one of the first difficulties or differences there. Now, <clears throat> however, there are very subtle yet very significant differences. Um, beginning with the last point, you know, that we just, we just made, there is no confusion uh, within the Orthodox Christian view that the soul is and remains the person that one may know or have known as she uh, existed while on the earth. So there's no ambiguity in that, in that he who lives and dies is the same person, mind, personality, individual, that exists into the afterlife, um, regardless of the destination. Also, it should be made note that the Orthodox Christian view um, is that the soul is not eternal, obviously, in the, in the pure sense of the word. Well, what do I mean? I mean, the, just the, the Christian holds the belief that the soul of every individual actually comes into existence when the individual comes into existence. The only debate is to how this happens, um, but not if it happens. So you have different views there. Um, some believing that the soul is, is created by a direct special act of God. Some uh, believe that, like something like Trandusianism, that, 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 that the, the material coming together of the biological sexes to produce a child is somehow also involved um, or is involved or it, it creates the soul. So again, just the, the debate as, as to how it happens, but not if it happens. Um, also, the Orthodox Christian does not hold to the belief that the soul um, predates uh, his or her existence upon the earth or in the womb. Um, as a side note, I mean, that is the belief of Mormonism, but not Orthodox Christians. Orthodox Christianity doesn't hold that at all. Um, and by the way, it doesn't recognize the, the, the uh, culture's current claim that Mormonism is simply a denomination of Christianity. Uh, the Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, the Evangelical Protestant churches, uh, they don't accept the Mormon faith as historical Christian uh, Christianity in any way. So anyway, we have a, a basic, again, roughshod view of some of Plato's thought. We haven't touched on, on much of that at all. I mean, we're already 30 minutes into the, into the podcast, and, and we're not even close to everything that Plato goes on. But at least we have a rough view, again, roughshod of what Plato looked at some of the issues, uh, namely his, 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 his trying to make sense of the one and the many and bringing into um, the light, so to speak, this, this idea, <laughs> no pun intended, of the ideas, the forms um, that Aristotle is going to refine, which hopefully we'll look at pretty quickly. Now, with that said, get off the porch. 